So this Ranker article, it's been going around uh, people on Twitter that are decoding work email jargon. The premise is, what are some of the best, most insufferable work gibberish phrases that you've heard? And what do they actually really mean? For example, please copy everyone on our team, which is code for you keep sending me requests on my day off. I've used this before. The term as previously discussed, which means I didn't put in a writing last time because I thought you were an adult. Or I'll let you two take it from here means I'm not part of this and don't want to be. Stop copying me on these emails. And this one, I know you've done this before, Reed. I know I've done it too. I'm sorry, I was on mute. Can you repeat the question? (laughs) Which really means I wasn't listening at all. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome to episode number 158 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith, joined as always by Chris Boyer. Welcome. I'm sorry, Reed. I was on mute. Can you repeat that? I didn't hear your question. No. Yeah. Hey, Reed. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, things are great. Uh, a lot of activity actually on the network. So if you uh, are new to the show or maybe you were a longtime listener and just didn't realize, Touchpoint, the show, is actually a part of a network of shows called Touchpoint Media. You can find us online touchpoint.health is the website. A couple of things of note. We have a new show, How I Got Here, uh, which is uh, me having conversations with folks that a fair amount of people know in the industry on how they got to where they are. So not so much about what they're doing now, but how they got to where they are, as well as another new show that launched just in the last few days. Uh, The Healthcare Internet Conference uh, partnered with us, Grace Fine folks over at graystone.net. And we produced HCIC Next, which uh, is going to be a series of 10 recordings from the 2019 Healthcare Internet Conference. First episode of that is is out, and you should uh, go check that out. But that'll come out weekly for the next 10 weeks or so. And not just any 10 um, sessions from the last conference. It's the 10 most highest ranked sessions. So some of the best ones that are out there. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts or streaming on Spotify. We certainly appreciate the support. We're going to take a brief pause and then we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide. 
and build a reputation that performs for you. Lately, we've been doing a lot of episodes around understanding our customers better in healthcare. We've talked about like empathy mapping, user-centric taxonomy, open-minded thinking. But as we've been talking about this, really the terms user-centered design, human-centered design, and even design thinking have come up often. I'm just wondering, Reed, and you've heard those terms. Do we actually know what those terms mean? Are there other ones like non-human-centered design or, <laughs> or human, human non-centered design? possibly or something or human design for non-humans. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I have heard of all those terms. I would say I'm probably in the majority that have probably used those interchangeably and don't know what they mean. Let's maybe start there and talk about what these mean. And I guess I'm a little confused on like how stuff Isn't everything human-centered? I think that the intent is not about the designer themselves, but it's about who it's being designed for. That's where we can get into sort of the nuances of those terms. Of course, in order to kind of ground us in what these definitions are, we turn to our good old human-centered designed Wikipedia. Yes. Let's just quickly go through some of the definitions of each one of these to understand them. I'll start with user-centered design. Wikipedia says that user-centered design is a framework of processes. It's not restricted to like technology or digital or whatever, in which usability goals, user characteristics, environment, tasks, and workflow of a product service or a process are given extensive attention to each stage of the design process that only requires designers to analyze and envision the way users are likely to engage with a product or a service or whatever it is, and then validate those assumptions with actual users of the product. Does that make sense? It's probably going to get more confusing as we get these definitions, but so far so good. You know, it's testing it with users as you're as you're building something, right? And then going and checking in to make sure that it's going to work rather than having users kind of change their behavior to work with a product or a service. It's really designing it for the user to be able to quickly use that. That's why it's called user-centered. But that's a little different than human-centered. So again, our friends at Wikipedia, human-centered design It's an approach to interactive systems development that aims to make systems usable and useful by focusing on the users, their needs and requirements. And by applying those human factors or even ergonomics, usability, knowledge, techniques, etc. This is meant to enhance the effectiveness and the efficiency. It improves human well-being. So I think that's kind of the key piece here, right? User satisfaction, accessibility, sustainability, et cetera, and counteracts possible adverse effects uh, of use on human health, safety, and performance. I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? This is about humans' well-being. And human-centered design is a term that's actually used a lot in the healthcare setting because it oftentimes, from a care design approach or even, you know, like an architectural design of an ED or whatever, you want to design it in such a way that you're addressing their well-being, you're addressing their overall health through this whole process or through this whole experience. Mm. The last term that kind of gets a little confused with this is uh, design thinking. 
And so again, Wikipedia has a great definition of design thinking. And by the way, all of this is in our show notes. Design thinking refers to the cognitive, strategic, and practical process by which design concepts are developed. Designs for new products, buildings, machines. And it really encompasses a process, processes such as context analysis, problem finding and framing, ideation, creative thinking, modeling, prototyping, etc. Design thinking is really around the process itself. It's not really de- centered around uh, making sure that the human or the user is at the center of this, really around just how to design in a different way. Probably clear as mud now, isn't it? I was fine until we got to the last definition. No, I, I think... <laughs> Predominantly, what we're talking about is the confusion between the first two, user-centered versus human-centered design, I think, at least, is where most people are. I don't know that we ultimately consider this when we're working, building, kind of in our day-to-day, do we? And a lot of times, we, coming from a digital perspective, we focus a lot on usability. Usability is not quite human centricity, so to speak, in your design. A lot of times, UCD, user centered design, is sort of is represented as a sub segment of human centered design. I think that it's hard for us to sometimes grasp the larger complexity of human centered design. You've got to get into some of the practicality or use cases of all this, I think, for to really come together, at least for me or for, for a lot of folks. Let's kind of keep going down this path. You found another uh, article. Actually, it's a, on Medium. So it's not you know at a big publication or whatever. User-centered design versus human-centered design versus design thinking. So again, what we're talking about. You know, he even goes through and talks about the Wikipedia definitions and that it was a lot of blah, 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 I think, as he put it. So, and he got to kind of this W3C link, I guess, about user-centered design. He came up, I guess, on his own. He says here, he's not sure if it's mentioned anywhere else, but created these, the four eyes of UCD versus human-centered design. The first eye is inspiration. The design phase where you analyze what problems the users are facing. Now, one of the differences between UCD and HCD is this, right? UCD is actually you, you've identified the problem. You're using user-centered design to solve or design around that. Human-centered design in the inspiration phase can even go so far as to say there's an old joke. How many human-centered design people does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is, why do we have to redesign a light bulb? <laughs> The inspiration is around understanding and analyzing where the problem that the user is facing. The second I he points out is ideation, uh, the design phase where you come up with potential solutions. You've been inspired. You understand what, you know, you, and you've analyzed what the, what the problem is. And so now you're coming up with what the potential solutions are. Note the plural plurality of that, right? And there's multiple solutions because in many cases here, they're often called hypotheses because it may or may not solve the problem that user is facing. That leads to step number three, which is implementation, the design phase where you're actually prototyping or implementing these ideas. The final I uh, iteration. uh, So this indicates that the last three phases are continuously rerun in forms of sprints. You know, he's using the word sprints here to kind of refine that prototype. And so again, it's kind of the rinse and repeat scenario of you found the problem, 
you're coming up with solutions, you're, you're then implementing those solutions or ideas. And then based on that feedback loop, you're starting back over, you know, with, okay, there's still this problem. Now, how do we fix that? What does that look like? How do we launch it? Blah, blah. You know, you just kind of, it's just a repetitive cycle of uh, one, two, and three. Ultimately, I think the point here is UCD and HCD starts from the people who are in need of a solution and end when you have found that suitable solution and to do it in an empathetic way while you're designing it around that user or that human, so to speak. If you think about that as a way to come up with a design, that's sort of a higher level approach to doing problem solving. Design thinking is a much more generic way of problem solving. To a designer, they look similar, but design thinking can be used by any problem solver. So let's go through the different phases of design thinking to show that it's similar, but it's different. Well, the first one is uh, to create empathy. You talk with the user, you understand them better, what they're trying to accomplish, that kind of thing. I think kind of that relationship piece allows for empathy and lets you better understand the position that they find themselves in. Then that leads to the next phase, which is finding the problem of the the user. They try to say from actual data, not just from your biases. I think we often you know, have our own biases when we come into it, you try to find that da- that from the actual data, from objective data. And then ultimately find solutions. So much like what we talked about earlier, you know, once you know what, uh, what you're trying to solve for, you know, what's that look like? Uh, this is the brainstorming, moonshot ideas, you know, all that kind of stuff. It seems very similar to the steps above, the four eyes. But in this case... It, it says make a solution, but don't fall in love with any solution because you might have to make another solution. And then finally, it's the, it's the testing piece. So you want to keep improving as kind of the, like the iteration stage above, but you, you want to test what you think the solution might be. Get that feedback, rinse and repeat. Those three terms, user-centered design, human-centered design, design thinking, are very similar. To your point, Reed, it's, it's actually how you apply them and what the use cases are. And After this quick break, we're going to get into those actual use cases. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Before the break, Reed, we were talking about user-centered design, human-centered design, design thinking. What a mouthful to say those things, right? But we were talking about <laughs> these general concepts. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that if you're in healthcare, be it from a digital marketing perspective, be it from an experience perspective, clinical perspective, or what have you, this whole concept of human-centered design is starting to be talked about quite frequently, And in fact, they say human-centered design is 
the genesis behind a lot of digital health solutions that are out there. So we found an article that is on CIO.com. That's our favorite, one of our favorite. We've re- mm-hmm. mentioned that website a couple of times before, but it, it is really getting into uh, how human-centered design is driving some of these solutions. They say that while non-traditional players like Walgreens are trying to win new customers through mobile apps, through various different iterations. And it could be not just Walgreens, right? It could be CBS. It could be a variety of different people. Traditional health systems, like, and I give an example of Providence Health being one of them, are applying proven models in e-commerce businesses to convert patients from offline to online relationships with tools such as chatbots, et cetera. What digital health is, is sort of the the merging of those two different ideas together and doing it in such a way that will allow for a better designed solution. It is. And it also talks a lot in here about uh, this idea of digital transformation, which we hear a lot about, but it's not just about improving the experience for the consumer, the patient, the potential patient, kind of what we think of. I think, you know, when we talk about like chatbots, for example, but it's also just as much about the caregivers and other stakeholders uh, in the healthcare experience. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about that, right, it's it's embracing all of the users of a particular product or service, not only the patients, but also the providers, the care teams, etc. Um, a lot of times this, this transformation starts within the IT department interestingly enough. But that's because that's where a lot of the digital transformation needs to occur. We in in the digital marketing space have been doing a lot of things around, let's say, creating optimizing digital front doors. We've talked about that before, Reed, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're creating great footprints. We're, we're, We're understanding how people navigate and actually select care from us through online. They say here in this article that digital front doors wrapped around core EHR systems or electronic medical record systems can really lead to better user experiences, at least at the interface level. Certainly it's not going to make it worse, right? I mean, yeah, it is an interesting way, though, where actually we're seeing other pieces of technology come into play to be kind of that digital front door versus waiting on the big technology players to you know better create experiences on their own. But we're seeing people actually build out those pieces that from an integration standpoint. And that leads to really the utilization of human-centered design in healthcare. And it's really talking about, we've talked about this, this concept before, it really is designed to meet the triple aim of healthcare. Do you remember what the triple aim is? Oh, no. I remember us talking about it, the triple aim. Increasing engagement, improving outcomes, and reducing costs. So increasing con- uh, patient engagement, improving their health outcomes, and overall reducing their cost. They're also talking here about this integration of behavioral economics and choice architectures, which is a lot of big words. We, we see things like around like penalties for bad behaviors or incentives for good behaviors. So if you think about uh, what we've historically thought, you know, like Weight Watchers, Fitbit, you know, some of those types of things where you're, you're rewarded for doing good things. That's kind of the final piece of this user design piece, right? So it's it's the integration of kind of those, based on the choice you make, you get types of feedback kind of in real time. 
Yeah, and what's interesting too is now we're talking about okay, so we talked about some disruptive entrants into the market like Walgreens, mm-hmm. CVS, Amazon, etc. We're also talking about behavioral design architecture which can come from like Weight Watchers, Facebook has it, right, and their preventative health tools, even Apple all focusing around existing digital solutions that are within the health system, again, towards that triple aim. The point here, though, is that there is still a lot of resistance that can be met when you start to do this. And this article highlights three of them. The first is that bias or misperception that caregivers that traditionally have been doing what they think is human-centered approach to with their patients, right, in terms of delivering the care, they have some biases or misperceptions of what this process could look like. Absolutely. They, they also talk about the threat of digital. So adapting a, a user-centered design approach to traditional care models to support digital health may cause distance or which, uh, you know, could get in the way of uh, reimagining the healthcare experience. Yeah, part of that is like, do we trust a chat bot? Right. Right? Or would we trust there is an Amazon Alexa device in our patient room? Would we trust it to actually communicate with our care professionals? These are things, you know, this threat of digital is a really significant, substantial thing. And the last thing, which is really interesting, is putting forth this concept that our patients really truly consumers. Uh-oh. We addressed this in the last week's episode, right? When mm-hmm. we were talking about price transparency, are they really making choices that way? We know that consumers want to make informed decisions based on convenience or transparency and choice, but sometimes these goals don't square with what the healthcare sector's traditional approaches to care are. And that could come in the form of price transparency. It could come in the form of, would you get your MRI at a, at a CVS? Right. There are a variety of different things that are, are really leading to the fact that is consumerism really driving patient behavior in, in the care setting? I think it depends on what, what you're talking about, right? Where if it's, if it's more of a consumer elected or driven decision, that's one thing. But when we're looking at, you know, you go to the doctor, you're sick and you're being referred more of an episodic scenario, it's probably less likely. But again, starting on the kind of lower end of the acuity, like the med spas of the world, even up through like sleep or bariatrics or joint, I think that's where you're starting to see more of the consumerism push. We want to leave a couple of specific discrete examples. There's a lot of them out there, um, but there are two examples that we're, we want to highlight and bring forward. I'll talk about the first one, Reed. Maybe you could talk about the second one, where human-centered design, user-centered design, again, I'm starting to use these interchangeably now, are being applied to focus in on some specific issues or specific instances. The first one is, is a little bit complicated, but it's really around closing the dis- health disparity gap for American Indians and Alaskan Natives through health IT modernization. This article came to us from the Health Affairs blog. That's actually a really great resource if you haven't Mm -hmm. gone there before. Mm -hmm. They highlighted this case where the Indian Health Service, the IHS, everything has a three-letter acronym, has provided a comprehensive health service delivery system since 1951 that's being delivered to or two and a half million American Indians and Alaskan natives that are within 573 federally recognized tribes in 37 states. So like a large 
very specific population in which healthcare is being delivered. The goal of this this institute, this IHS, is to raise physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of American Indians and Alaskan Natives. And really, it's around building healthy communities, developing quality healthcare systems, and having strong partnerships that are culturally responsive to those different tribes and the different Native approaches in which they have always um, engaged with care. In May of 2018... The VA made a decision to replace their EHR, their electronic health record system, with a commercial product. It was the same EHR that was being used by the Department of Defense. So from a government perspective, what they said, we're going to try to land, move from one EHR to another EHR. Sounds simple, right? Well, unfortunately, the IHS, this Indian Health Services that are underneath the Veterans Administration, suddenly realized there was a big problem here. Because their homegrown EHR before this was highly customized for this specific population. So what they had to do, they employed a user-centered design firm to help specifically to understand and mitigate the complexities of how the EHR was currently being used and how it was customized. And what's interesting about this population is they have a very specific cultural approach towards how does tribal policy interact with data ownership and your health record? And that's something that wouldn't have been known if you're just swapping out an an electronic health record solution. What suddenly became a simple technology swap became this huge uh, initiative in which they're actually doing some user-centered design. What they're really looking for is developing a health IT solution that's going to integrate a modern IT governance structure, a modern EMR, but also has streamlined intuitive data capturing and reporting that have to be respectful of both tribal self-determination and the tribal data sovereignty needs that are within this population. And so, of course, they have to bring the users of this solution, these Native Americans and these Alaskan Natives, into the design process. There you go. That sounds like that's a, a very complex solution, but does that make sense what they're doing? If you boil it back to just what the the process is, the human-centered design piece of it, you can see this in a lot of places. That's one great example of taking something that's pretty complex and figuring out, well, okay, well, how does this, how does this make sense and work uh, in this scenario? The other example that, that we've got here is actually uh, from Allscripts, uh, pretty pretty well-known EHR uh, vendor in the space. And uh, this is from uh, healthitnews.com. But anyway, it's an article that's talking about they're going to be showcasing a prototype of a move to a human-centered design product at at the upcoming HEMS conference at HEMS 20. This is pretty interesting, right? Because I don't know that anybody would argue that the big EHR companies are the most progressive, user-centered, human-centered design thinking groups. And if you look through here, Jenna Date, who is uh, kind of working through some of this, and, and you see her in the article here, she actually talks about the the steps 
And it's she must have read Wikipedia because she has the same steps listed here that we went through. So, oh, good. Yeah. So we're, we're all on the same page. But if you go down and, and you look, there's actually an interesting quote here uh, by Paul Minton. He's uh, CEO of Allscripts. And uh, it says, Allscripts has taken the view that while the user-centered design process in use by all EHR vendors today is required by the ONC, uh, has been in general a, a great step forward for delivering better designed features for clinicians, something was still missing. Well, there's no huge guess of what that is, but it's that holistic human experience, right? And so mm-hmm. Paul, which is the vice president of product management, so he's the one kind of overseeing all of this. He talks about, you know, for example, a provider may say he or she wants a certain workflow to be more efficient. Uh, that's something that universally common to all providers, but, but it's important to know why. You know, is there a why due to the provider wasting, uh, you know, wanting to see more patients uh, or is it spend more time with their patients or is it so they can get home early or, you know, what, what, like, why do they want this certain workflow, not just that they want the certain workflow? You know, I'm interested. And for those of you who are listening in or going to Hims, stop by and, and take a look to see what Allscripts is doing. I think they're going to be presenting on this. It'd be, it's an interesting thing, right, to, to bring in all of these different concepts, emotions, thoughts, desires, etc., to create products that actually are going to be, well, Paul says he's, he's looking to build a product that delights I'm not sure I can even say that about an electronic medical record system. That would be delightful. <laughs> I don't know what that would look like. I don't know. Me. I don't know. But hey, if you're there, if you're there, Allscripts is in booth 1501 and 7861. So stop by, check out the uh, check out the prototype. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to hear about it and and why it seems to be or kind of what that human element has done to it. Not only if you go to Hims, we really want to hear from anybody listening in on any examples they have where they might be applying UCD, human-centered design, design thinking in their work, big or small. I mean, the application of this, it, it can be various, and I'm sure there's many different solutions that are out there. I had the opportunity to sit down with Lisa Hominiak, who is the owner of a company called Azul7, and they happen to be a human-centered design firm that works with a lot of organizations on developing these various different solutions. She and I sat down and talked about how they're applying human-centered design in, in specifically some of the work that they're doing within healthcare setting, pharmaceutical, and even medical device. So let's go over to Lisa, who actually is a real expert on this situation. We'll do that right after this break. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I am talking in person which I'm excited about because usually I talk to people over the phone, uh, Lisa Helminiak, who is um, the owner, I guess. Yes, uh, owner. 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 Of yeah. Azul7, <laughs> which is a local agency here in the Twin Cities, and who I met just about well, a little over a month ago yes. uh, through a mutual connection, and it feels like you and I have hit it off right away. We have. It's been a great conversation. <laughs> I love talking about uh, healthcare and how we can improve it. So. Well, Awesome. Well, Lisa, so I know you. I I have the pleasure of knowing you, but maybe our audience doesn't. So would you mind giving a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. I'm. uh, My background is in user experience design. I have and theater, quite honestly, which I think has been an interesting trajectory. Uh, Theater actually is a lot has a lot to say about how we design things for people and thinking about it holistically. 
But I've been working in the industry for a long time. I really care about design. And as we were talking about earlier, I, I feel like I'm one of those translators between technologists, business people, and, and design people mm -hmm. to try to get us all moving in the same direction at the same time for the right reasons. So mm -hmm. that's been my background. Um, I've really, I've worked at a lot of different agencies, finally started my own, and uh, we really function as a you know, customer experience or patient experience design firm. So we, we focus on creating uh, digital products, digital experiences, but also service design, because mm -hmm. all of that stuff has to fit into an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. People don't really think about it that way, especially in healthcare. There's a lot of divides, and so we're trying to break down some of those barriers. Absolutely. Well, today we're going to be talking about this, this topic, and it's interesting because even in the setup, we, we mentioned in many different ways, user-centered design, patient-centered design, and human centered design and we were just yeah. talking prior to starting the interview that this concept is is a little bit well, nebulous maybe to some people so maybe let's start with that talk to us about your perspective around user-centered design you know user-centered design has been around a long time if you think about it it came out of heuristics design through the industrial revolution so when we started creating things that could kill people like cars we had to figure out how you know humans could use them in a better way so that they were safer, mm -hmm. and so heuristics, um, you know, design around you know can I you know signal my turn? Can I stop the car? And do I understand how to do it intuitively? That's been around for a long time. So it comes out of a product development philosophy. Human-centered design has evolved from that and I think it's become more holistic because you know we're looking at systems design now. We know things are more complex, everything impacts another thing and so human-centered design is I think become the terminology overarching. I think there's still debate in our world mm -hmm. and I'm you know, you know let's just pick a term. I like that one. <laughs> um, and then patient-centered design of course you know mm -hmm. patients are a special breed of people, if you will, and I and, and I want to talk about that. There's a lot we can talk about there because patients are pretty unique in, in a lot of ways. And I and I think you know we've done a lot of work in, in patient design from a lot of different aspects, everything from you know the beginning to the end of care, the financial aspects of care, the provider side of care, you know, and how things are, are set up um, to you know make outcomes better. We don't design the actual care protocols. That's obviously doctors and you know PhDs who are figuring that out. But we're we're trying to figure out all those other things that get to better health outcomes. Well, and even as you mentioned, right, doctors and clinical people are kind of shaping those care experiences. Yeah. I think that in the industry in and of itself realizes that there is a need now mm -hmm. to transform that entire experience, yes. right, and make it more around the human, more around whoever that potential user or patient may be. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there's been this move to consumerism, this idea that, that there are consumers in healthcare, and I really want to debunk that right off the bat. And I actually think it's a dangerous idea. Um, I hate it when I hear the word consumer. You know, when we think of consumers, consumer is a really a term that has been designed to look at, you know, a buying process, mm -hmm. right? So I consider what my, my options are, I look at price, I look at value, I make, you know, choices, I do research. That is not how patients function. They can't even function that way. There's so many more layers that get in the way of a consumer approach to healthcare. First of all, 
no one wants to be a patient. The fact that they don't want to even be there impacts, you know, mm -hmm. how they interact with the system, mm -hmm. if you will. And so I think, you know, we have to start from really where people are in their healthcare continuum, what their philosophies are, how they feel about themselves. We do a lot of patient research and we know a thing, just th their own sense of identity can change how they interact with mm -hmm. care. Uh, we see patterns of evolving people who are very engaged and feel very in control of their lives and, you know, in control, uh, you know, active in their choices, mm -hmm. deal with their care much differently than somebody who is despondent or doesn't feel like they have any control of, in a situation. So we have to look at people and their behavioral characteristics to look at the right care for them. And that's from everything from the get-go, from you know entering the care system, whatever, however that happens, whether it's you know walking into an emergency room or going to your doctor for a checkup, to trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle so you're not a patient. It's a complex system, and uh, we you know we find that we're we're designing pieces of it, but we're trying to look at it more holistically. So somebody's billing process can really impact the health outcome. Oh wow. And so we, we want to know that, like if they're confused or upset or, you know, don't know, you know, what their choices are, that can impact their care. Mm -hmm. So we want to look at all those things. So what we're talking about is like really looking at their, the care journey, yes. so to speak, right? Yes. Which is really close, uh, maybe a close relative of the customer journey. But, but now we're talking about the care journey, which is, again, as you mentioned, very, very complex. Right. So you've done some some work with others around this. So talk a little bit about like, how would you even approach that? Because for many of us, we get started down this path and we only take a very small segment of that journey because that's all we can really understand. How, how do you start looking at this? Usually it's somebody coming to us with a, a, a a challenge to solve. Mm -hmm. You know, so we we've looked at end of encounter kind of care, like end of the visit. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to my doctor and I'm usually asked to do something. I'm, you know, unless it's perfectly and perfectly healthy, you know, great. I can walk out and I don't even have to do anything. But many times you're fulfilling prescription or there's other things you're being asked mm -hmm. to do. Is it clear, you know, what are the resources that are left with patients? You know, we see these really bad, um, it looks like they're mimeographed, you know, care <laughs> documents, like, oh, do these four steps, you know, right. um, do they understand them? So, so we're looking at different aspects of the care continuum. Mm -hmm. um, we've been doing some work on a pharmaceutical company that we've been working with over the years at, at the patient journey into diagnosis for, for rare diseases. Okay. That's been really interesting mm -hmm. because in, you know, some of the challenges there are just getting the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm and then getting the right care once you have the right diagnosis. So where are the opportunities to help people on both sides with the patient and also the caregiver as well as the physician get the care plan right through mm -hmm. that process, especially mm -hmm. if there's not a lot of physicians available who understand a particular disease. So there are a lot of entry points. Mm -hmm. um, we've done some work looking at, uh, it was a project for uh, a local uh, team here around preparing children, families preparing children for surgery. Mm -hmm. There's some cultural things happening in the Twin Cities that are not allowing the families uh, to feel comfortable with you know, the prep that they have to do for, for surgery, which is not feeding your child for 24 mm -hmm. hours. So it's been, just been interesting about some of the cultural Im impact that as we have a more diverse country and more diverse you know, uh, living situations, 
just people approach care differently too. And I'm really fascinated with that. I'm really more, I'm interested in looking at cultural impacts on care too. Yeah, and I think that's a significant part of how the different types of care pathways should be you know, structured or architected. But mm-hmm. I think a big running theme here though is you spend a lot of time understanding the human side of the experience. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that, you know, for many of us, myself included, right, I came from a digital marketing background. It's easy to, tra- to track how people navigate a website or, or some kind of digital experience. But in the case of human-centered design, user-centered design, whatever we call it, understanding that, that the person that's involved becomes an important part of this, doesn't it? Oh, it's the crux of the whole thing. Um, We use a design thinking framework in a lot of the work that we do. We use different frameworks. We also do behavior design work. Um, But design thinking and a lot of these these, um, frameworks that that, uh, human-centered designers use are based in um, empathy gathering research. We call it design research, empathy research, and it's really um, like a survey is not gonna suffice for that type of research. So when, when you really want to understand someone's need, they cannot articulate it most of the time. So surveys are great for certain things, but they're not great at re- really figuring out what people are doing. Often people don't even tell the truth in, mm. in surveys. You know, we all know that, you know, when we ask, when doctors ask, you know, what is your weight? They reduce it by 10% or whatever Absolutely. it is. So we know, we know how that goes. And it's the same thing for any kind of asking direct questions. Mm-hmm. Humans always want to show our best selves yeah. right so we answer things in the way we think people want to hear mm-hmm. and so we find that doing research that even focus groups we don't find work that mm-hmm. well because they're usually again there's there's behavioral traits we all have that there's usually a leader in that room it influences everyone else and so we often do research that's observational we'll go into people's homes we'll watch a practitioner in a setting to see what they're doing and then ask questions and observe. So it's really about that quiet, more ethnographic, anthropological research where we're like, really what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then you know, we do a lot of why, um, questioning, why are you doing this this way? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting to get to those, those answers because that's when you start seeing ins- you know, insights. People can't tell you exactly what they need sometimes, but you can see it. And it's often hard for us that are inside, you know, in the in the forest, right, and unable right. to see the trees, to be able to, to see through that. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we come with our own biases and misconceptions about what we're actually looking for. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. And I think in healthcare especially, it's there's a lot of protocols already designed into healthcare. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those protocols get in the way of care. And so w- what do we need to keep and what, what can be modified to work better for people? Like th- there's just been different studies. I love the one that came out of Kaiser Permanente, which was looking at um, the administration of drugs in the hospital. Mm-hmm. They realized that the um, compliance and accuracy with the drug administration was really off and often particular teams because there were, were not any signals to tell people, you know, now's the time you have to be in there or signal that something that had already been given to something. So they created these very simple signals within the room itself, you know, like little color signals to say mm-hmm. this person needs their you know, meds at this time and this person's been given their meds. So something as simple as that can really be kind of an environmental signal to let people know the status of something. So, you know, there's a lot of designs that we can look at that help people do their jobs better, even though they know what their jobs are. 
that's an example of where we can design something that, that helps meet people's needs better. Is it hard, though? I mean, I've worked with a lot of physicians mm -hmm. <laughs> in particular. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of times they come with a very strong-minded approach yes. to it. Is, it. is it hard sometimes for those of us closer to the, that experience to see through, to be able to get this perspective? Yeah, I'm going to tell you that some of our best successes are working around the doctors, unfortunately. Oh, really? You know, I see it changing, though, because I think newer and younger doctors are getting trained in more human-centered design methodology. Mm -hmm. um, older doctors, there's this really command and control protocol that makes it hard for them to give things up. Mm. So it, it may be that we're not designing with the doctor in mind or we have to work around that. But there's still ways we can influence the ecosystem, mm -hmm. you know, in the right players. It may be follow-up uh, documents or data that goes to people. It might be a, an online interface that helps people take their medication better. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are the things. I think there's some really interesting possibilities with, with digital health that allow people to connect the dots more. And I, it, that's a very rich area. There's a lot of bad design in digital health. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I walk around HIMSS and these big conferences just <laughs> looking at, oh my God, looking at these interfaces, thinking, how does anyone use that? Uh, and we have a lot of experience actually designing for that type of mm -hmm. work too. So to simplify it, clarify it, actually look at protocols so that, you know, there's, you know, data is in, in a progress, done in a progressive way, in a consistent way. So we've seen interfaces where on one screen, you know, green means good, you know, an arrow up means good, and on another screen that that could not mean good. You know? oh so I mean, that's a, like an extreme example, but you know, they're just consistency, clarity. Mm -hmm. um, there's done a lot of work about you know um, alarms in the hospital setting that there's everyone's so alarmed out that they don't even listen to them anymore. Right. That's bad design. That's dangerous design. Mm -hmm. So you might be thinking that alarm is a good thing, but you have to think of it in the context of which it's it's sitting. And so. We can't design in silos anymore. And that's the big thing. I think that's the exciting thing for people um, when they get involved with human-centered design from the healthcare industry. They're excited about it because it, it helps reinforce the idea that we need multiple perspectives at the table to do design in the right way. We mentioned, you know, like digital health. And I think that there is this interesting nexus that's happening within the healthcare industry and in that we're, we're developing now through digital health more and more self-service tools for users yeah. to use, right? <laughs> um, and I think that there is a, a big promise around that, telemedicine, telehealth, even if walking through Best Buy, you can see all of the home health devices that they're, they're, they're entering into the marketplace. Yeah. But, um, and, and earlier you alluded to, um, you did some research where you actually went into patients' homes. What kind of perspectives have you found? You know, are, are these home health devices, is digital health, how dire is it or how good is it? Well, it's, you know, again, a wide spectrum, mm -hmm. you know, so if you, you look at kind of the dual eligible Medicare Medicaid population, mm -hmm. um, I, we've been working with a team that, you know, has found that a lot of them don't even have internet to their home. Mm -hmm. So what do you do there? You know, what, how do you help them set things up? And then you've got people who are, you know, have every gadget in their home, they have, you know, uh, digital home. So then we've got that spectrum to design for. And the people who actually maybe need this digital health support are the people who don't have the internet connection. Right. It's an interesting dichotomy. And I think we're such at the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. Again, who gets that data? How, what do they do with it? Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, what are the care protocols designed in this disaggregated space? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we incentivize people to engage with, you know, the, the, the information they're getting back? Where, where do we have to have humans and where can bots or, you know, other things fill in the gap? Right. Lots of questions right. that are very interesting. So I'm super excited. We, we've, I've been talking a little bit with uh, folks at the MIT Media Lab around um, some of the um, AI work that they've been doing for mm-hmm. elderly po- populations and children. And there's some really interesting stuff about creating kind of cute bots that people, almost that Tamaguchi thing where I like this thing, it's cute, and I engage with it, and so I feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is trust, comfort. There's reason for people to worry about being spied on in their home, right? Right. <laughs> so right. <laughs> I or having things fail because you know something bad happened. So we we there's a lot of things we have to look at, and you know the last thing we want to do is harm or hurt anybody. And so I mm-hmm. think we've got to be really careful and thoughtful about how we design things, particularly in healthcare where the stakes Absolutely. are much higher, right? Absolutely. In many cases. So I think this is fascinating. This is a great conversation, and you know some people listening in may want to just get started, right? Like what. Can you provide any again recommendations if someone's interested in saying maybe we need to look at this a little bit differently? Yeah. What what would you what would you say to them? There are tools available. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually do training. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to make this a commercial, but That's we, fine. we do training in human centered design, and we train healthcare teams so that they can actually do it themselves. I'm a big believer that a consultant can help cannot help you mm-hmm. uh, do this. That you have to have people inside. I actually think there may be, um, you know, a chief patient experience officer t- title that starts to emerge in companies. Like you're starting to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's patient experience groups um, and practitioner groups. I do think that you need to get some training in, in these frameworks that we know work. Design thinking is one, human-centered design. There's lean startup. There's, you know, behavior design. There's, there's different frameworks that people might want to tap into mm-hmm. so that they have a base to, from which to work. Um, and I think that's important. I actually think the higher up we can go, the more doctors, the more administrators we can get. Mm-hmm. We have clients that we're training CEOs mm-hmm. um, because they need to understand that it's a different way of working. It's a different way of, you know, we, we do smaller pilot projects. We do prototyping. We do a lot of testing. So you've got to have that flexibility to test new ideas. So do we design a clinic for those tests? Mm -hmm. Do we design, you know, how do we create an environment so that we can do that testing to see what's working? Um, The last thing we want to do is have something work for the patient that doesn't work for the physician or the care team. And so we know there's two sides of that design coin that have to work together. Mm -hmm. And so we have to create those pilots or those little teams where we can we can you know test our hypothesis and you can start doing things very simply mm-hmm. look at the communications that your 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 patients get mm-hmm. bottom line start there mm-hmm. do they work mm-hmm. one of the funniest things that we encountered on this this we did this work on the end of the patient visit mm-hmm. one of the funniest things we saw and it's happened to all of us it's happened to me where you the doctor leaves the room and they say oh you can leave now and you get dressed and you walk out of the room and you're like, I don't know where to go. <laughs> like, do I turn right? Do I turn left? There's like 15 signs that say exit. And then they say stop by the, you know, the desk to schedule your next appointment. You're like, where am I? <laughs> wow. So, I mean, think yeah. about that. Or, you know, again, another big thing for me is, does my doctor seem to know me? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. does the doctor walk in the room with some level of knowledge of who I am and why I'm there? 
well, you know, if you do this the right way, mm -hmm. right, and you design the, the experience around that patient, everyone on the care team is, by default, understanding you better, and I think that can lead to a better experience. Right, and I think doctors want to understand their patients better, right? It's yeah. kind of a win-win. There's yeah. nothing to be afraid of here. Mm -hmm. And again, I think um, the more we can embed the, the framework thinking in, in our teams, the better. So in design thinking, it's empathizing, defining, ideating, prototyping, and testing. Mm -hmm. And it's an iterative cycle. So there's nothing fancy about that. Like It's like, that's how we design things. <laughs> but it's about learning to do it on a regular basis. I, I liken it to a little bit like um, any kind of practice like Tai Chi or something. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit anti, anti our, the way we think and work. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit against our human nature because we like to walk in the room knowing the answer. And we get rewarded for that. And this is really deferring judgment late. You know, oh, we have a hypothesis. We're going to figure out, design it, test it, and, and, and see if it's working. And we're going to do it again if we didn't get it quite right. And feeling comfortable with that. Yeah, and then like riding, like doing the Tai Chi or riding the bicycle. You have to do it. <laughs> it becomes over and over again, and then that becomes the way you... You work. You work. Yeah. Really, and that's like sort of that promise of that open thinking. And you know what? It's mm -hmm. so freeing to work that way. Oh, my God. People, I think one of the big things that comes out of human-centered design when teams start doing it immediately is team satisfaction goes way up. Wow. Because they feel like they're having an impact. Mm -hmm. And they are heard and they can, you know, they're listening better. Everyone sees, I, you know, the things that they can improve in their jobs. This gives you a path to make those improvements and get them validated. Wow. So it's kind of cool. I yeah. love it. It's, I love it. Well, your passion comes through and it's, <laughs> and it's infectious, I have to say. So, oh, good. And, and uh, Lisa, there's so much more that you and I could talk about. But uh, yeah. for today, we'll kind of close um, with letting people know a little bit more about you. Um, what's a great way for them to, to, to follow you online? Um, so I, I do publish things on LinkedIn. So if you want to find me um, on my LinkedIn profile, that's a great way to find us. Um, Azul7, A-Z-U-L-S-E-V-E-N.com. We have a, a blog on there with lots of good information that's been published. Um, you know, hit me up. Send me an email. Happy to talk with you. Well, we'll link it all in the show notes, that's for sure. And since you are in the same city as I am, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to have you back on for some future episodes. Because great. there's so much more we could talk about. Oh, I know. I could just go I, on and on and on. Oh, this is great. This is great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Chris. All right. Special thanks to Lisa. I appreciate her coming on and a great conversation. Uh, again, this is a pretty uh, weighty topic uh, around the way we think about uh, some of the work and solutions that we provide in the work that we do. So I appreciate her coming on and talking about human-centered design. A couple of points to note. Uh, again, we mentioned the website earlier, touchpoint.health, and the new shows that have come out on the network. Uh, we would encourage you to also sign up for the TPS report, our weekly email that goes out with aggregated news from around the industry by the show hosts that are on the network. And uh, any new episodes that we've released are also kind of documented there. But in addition, it also has... A little bit of information about upcoming conferences where you can find us. So, uh, again, right around the spring break time frame, South by Southwest down in Austin. I would love to know if you're going to be attending. Please reach out. And then I believe it's April 5th through the 7th is uh, the Forum uh, for Healthcare Strategist Conference in Las Vegas. 
Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some other conferences that we'll be able to share pretty soon where both Reed and I will be at. Um, We're working on those. Sign up for our TPS report. I think that that is a really great resource for those of you who want to stay in the know and can't get enough of hearing from us over here at Touchpoint. Let's do a uh, let's do a couple recommendations. Uh, I'll go first. My recommendation is a little bit uh, generic's not really the right word, but it's more of just a category or topic. Or well, anyway, I'll just I'll make the recommendation. I would recommend if you don't have one, getting a rocking chair. Ooh. Yeah, you should have a rocking chair. Actually, I have one in my office and I find it enjoyable, like in the mornings when I'm reading something before I kind of get into some computer work and stuff like that. It's a great place to sit or mid-afternoon if you've got to sit and review some things or something like that. Yeah, a rocking chair. I feel like that's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. We don't see enough rockers. And I don't mean like, I don't, not the, not a lazy boy. Like it doesn't recline and stuff like that. Like an actual, like this one's kind of a wood framed. It's got a cushioned seat or whatever, but kind of a slim rocker. It's my recommendation. So now I'm envisioning you in the afternoon sitting on your rocking chair in your office, drinking your organic peppermint tea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, organic peppermint <laughs> tea. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. Well, Reed, maybe my recommendation could be part of that overall scenario that I'm painting there. Maybe you could be sitting down and listening to a podcast that I'm going to recommend. It's one that I recently just tuned into. It's only about three episodes in. It's called We Crashed. The Rise and Fall of WeWork. We've heard all about Adam Newman, the, the CEO of WeWork. It was valued at one point at $47 billion. It goes through the rise and the fall of what happened. And it, and it, it starts off, the first few episodes have kind of set the stage. Where did he come from? How did this idea come to light? His partners, his early partners, and how they started to uh, to build this idea. And it's going to continue on through, it's a six-part series, about halfway done. As they say, it's a story of hope and hubris, big money and bigger screw-ups, and the lengths people will go to chase unicorns. <laughs> it's actually really fun. It's a really, uh, really well done podcast. The episodes are relatively, um, you know, they're not they're not that long. I would say they're about a half an hour long, so really easy to listen to, right? And it's done very well by the by a great um, podcast network that I follow called The Wondery. So I recommend it. It's called We Crashed. Nice. That's a great recommendation. I've seen that and I've actually heard a little bit of the previews of some of it based on some of the other shows that I listen to. But yeah, that's going to be a good one. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, those are great. A couple of great recommendations. Uh, Again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. That's the number one way that uh, you can help us out. Tell the sponsors thank you when you see them coming up at the uh, conference there in Las Vegas. We would uh, certainly appreciate that as well. Reach out to us, LinkedIn, Twitter, however you want to uh, get in contact with us. We'd love to love to hear from you, have feedback and, and the like. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we will see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.